this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson River? He had done everything there is to do in an airplane. He was even a trainer of other pilots, yet he had never had the opportunity to land an airplane on the Hudson River. He had one shot at greasing that landing and he nailed it. And when it comes to selling your business, you've got one shot. One shot to make sure you punch above your weight when you go to sell your company. One shot to make sure you don't make some of the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they sell their business. That's why I wrote the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for anyone looking to sell their company. You can get it along with some gifts for my listeners at builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. My name is John Warlow, your host, and this is the show that helps you punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating the sale of your company. I want to start off with a question. What do you do when you get an unsolicited email from someone who wants to either buy or invest in your company? My guess is that lately that's been happening to you more frequently, whether it's a private equity group or a strategic acquirer. It's a pretty frothy M&A market, and you may be getting people approaching you about potentially buying your business. Now, that can be incredibly flattering when it happens. It validates your business and everything you've built. And by getting lured into that conversation, certainly by signing a no-shop clause that often is a prerequisite to signing a letter of intent or a condition of signing a letter of intent, you lose negotiating leverage. And it's at the stage where you actually want negotiating leverage. You want multiple bidders for your company. And that's exactly what Ted and Arlene Tavares knew. They're longtime listeners to this show. They've heard this sentiment before. And so when they got an unsolicited offer for their business of 12 times EBITDA, they were tempted... But as they'll tell you, they knew that they needed to shop the deal. They didn't sign the letter of intent at 12 times EBITDA, and they went back to the market. They got multiple offers, ultimately settling at 16 times EBITDA. To tell you how they did it, here is Ted and Arlene Tavares. Arlene and Ted Tavares, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Excited to be here, John, with you. Absolutely great fans, especially my wife. She's a super fan. So. <laughs> I got to win you over yet, Ted? Is that right? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I've listened to many of them, but she is really, she listens to more podcasts than I do, specifically in this area, because since we were oh, trying to, you know, bring the company to another level or, or uh, you know, get away from it. Uh, she was really, really gung-ho on listening. And, and it's not something that started a year ago. I mean, she's been doing it for like eight or nine years. Oh, yeah. We've been listening, yeah, for a long, long time. And oh, I would just great. give him the cliff notes on a lot of the episodes. <laughs> that's right. Or then when uh, the cliff notes I felt wouldn't do justice, I'm like, here's the link to the episode. Better listen to it, buddy. Yeah. Oh, we, we, we listen to a lot of that stuff in the car. So, yeah, she just turned it on in the car and drives. 
Well, this, these are what, these are my favorite episodes because I love hearing from listeners who sell. Like, like that's the whole point of the show. So that's yeah. awesome yeah. that you guys uh, are uh, poster children for uh, for the show. So it's great, love it. So we're gonna dig into this company with a weird name, but a really cool product. So it's called Insurance Licensing Services of America, which we can shorten for our guests or listeners to ILSA. Correct. Yes. yes. What an, I, I read the press release. I'm like, I have no clue what you guys do. So you got to dumb it down for me. What on earth does Ilsa do? Okay. Ahead, so if uh, an insurance agent is selling insurance to cover American Airlines, let's say. Yep. American Airlines has planes in every single state. That means that that insurance agent needs to have a license in 50 states. Because American Airlines, you could imagine, is a risky type of coverage, they also need what's called a surplus lines license. So not only do they need a property and casualty license, but they need a surplus lines license. So now you're talking about 100 licenses that they need there. And they work for an insurance agency. So that agency also needs that hun- those 100 licenses. So they don't want the headaches of having to obtain all of those licenses. So they outsource to us. We get them the licenses. We maintain the licenses and pay certain taxes that have to go to certain insurance departments because wow. of those special licenses. This is like the plumbing, the, the, the yes. underbelly of the insurance business. Like, how on earth do you get into that? Like, that's incredible. Freelancing in New York. Okay, we were, we were doing freelancing in New York City and we landed in a company called Minette. Uh, we absolutely love the company, love the, the management of that company. We learned so much from them. We were very young at the time and Arlene worked her way to be a vice president. Yeah, an assistant vice president, um, went to the College of Insurance and, um, you know, just stumbled really upon the insurance industry. Like Ted said, we freelanced. Just love the team, love the environment and decided, you know, this was the path. Well, they asked her to handle licensing nationwide. So she was doing the licensing for the company here in the U.S. and in Canada as well. Okay, so if I'm an insurance, let me get this straight. So if I'm an insurance agent and I've got a relatively complicated case that kind of goes beyond my pay grade in terms of licensing and trying to figure out all the states and all the, I might outsource some of the, I may maintain the relationship with the client. So I get paid and they think of me as their hero. Mm-hmm. But on the back end, I might sort of pass some of the complicated stuff off to you guys. Yeah. Am I yeah. getting it ish? Yeah. Close? So that you can make money so that you can keep writing tons of national policies, big policies, but you don't have to worry about licensing and renewing all of those licenses that come at different times of the year. Regulatory compliance is a job in itself. So, you know, what we tell the agents and the agencies is, hey, you get to do your job rather than trying to do this. And keeping up with any changes at any time, a license could be set up for renewal. And if you have 100 licenses and they're set up for renewals or something changes, there's no way you're going to know. And the fines can be pretty stiff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. since our people are in touch with the states every single day for so many clients, for thousands of clients, you know, they, it's easier for them to keep up and make changes in our system and uh, it's help. 
it's like the old, you know, like, would you go to a doctor to replace your hip? No, you go to a specialist that does the hip, you know, like you have a GP relationship, but at the same time you have specialists that, that do some of the more specialized stuff. Okay. I think I get it. How, what was the business model? Like, how did you guys get paid? How did you get, how'd you make money? So initially we were actually doing like an all-inclusive service. So if you needed to renew 100 licenses and you needed to track continuing ed, and we would give you a set price per month. Um, after we started the business years later, we, we changed that business model to a per transaction service, just because we felt it was a fairer system. So we have now over 50 compliance services, not just licensing, but a lot of filings that have to do with the Secretary of State, the Department of Revenue. Every single transaction has a fee associated with it. So at the end of the month, the clients get invoiced per all of the transactions that we've handled for them. Got it. You move to like the, the Stripe visa model where you pay per transaction. So yeah. the, the more complicated files they write, the more transactions and got it. Excellent. I'm trying to, I'm, I was going to ask you how seasonal that was. Did you find that going to, what was, what were the downsides of going transactional? Was it more seasonal or were, are there other? So for sure. Right. Like if you know, you're paying, you're charging a set fee every month, you have a good um, understanding of what your cash flow is going to be. Mm-hmm. But when you go to a transactional um, setup, it definitely will have uh, seasonal. So like, there's certain services that we provide that have to do with the Secretary of State. Those are definitely seasonal. March and April are busy times. Uh, our surplus lines tax filing services, those are more towards the end of the year and the beginning of the first quarter of the year. But with time, you know, the, the more clients you have, you're able to easily deal with those ebbs and flows on the cash flows. Got it. Got it. And you owned this business for about 20 years, right? Yes. So you went through uh, the kind of great recession of 08, 09. Yeah. What was that like for you guys? That was really an eye opener. Um, to that point, at the end of the year, we would always give out big bonuses, pretty much wiping out all the cash and just start all over again. Meaning <laughs> you bonused I, yourselves out? No. Oh, no. Oh. All of our employees. All of okay. our employees. And so our CPA, who's been with us for 20 years, Roy Spinks out of uh, Waco, Texas, he would say, I don't know, guys, if this is the best thing for you guys to do. Of course, the Great Recession comes October 2008. We think at that point that the insurance industry is going to be insulated from this Great Recession. Heck no. It starts really hitting us about 2009, 2010. We lost 70% of our income, 70%, because a lot of our clients merged. Many went out of business and um, we were bleeding, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars every month. And that took a year without salary um, to, to stay afloat and, we were just happy to to be surviving at that point. Uh, and, you know, we had a, a talk with our staff and we said, guys, we understand if you guys uh, need to leave because in Texas, you know, the oil fields were shut down. There's all many things happening. And, and guys, if it wasn't the wives who were working for us, 
uh, it was their husbands who were going to go somewhere else to look for jobs. And we said, we understand if you have to go. At that time, we had gone from 70 employees to 30. Uh, (laughs) You know, they slowly started to drift away and and we weren't really firing anybody. It was just that that's what's going on. And we were fine with that. At the same time, we were cross training everybody. So we had this we said this is an opportunity for us now that we're down to really get people trained in so many different areas. So the ones we had left, we did that. And then we sat with them and we said, we understand if you need to leave. And they were like, nope, we're not going anywhere. And here's a list of things you need to cut for us because we are staying here. I mean, that it was a, it was, a blessing. It, for you us. know, it's kind of amazing, right? Like in our darkest financial days for us to take our team and say, we're going to take the time now to really cross train and automate a lot of processes that we haven't been able to do in the past because we were so busy. So everyone got cross trained. How wonderful is that? And then all of these automation projects got put in place. And then we also read the great game of business and Mm. put that into place, which was, um, we have money huddles uh, every week and we talk about our finances, where everything is, where we're going. The important thing about that time is that we didn't sit around and panic. What we did, we talked to our people and we said, listen, the reason why we're doing all this cross training, the reason why we're upgrading all our technology is when those gates open, we want to be like that horse, just itching for things to get going. We know that things are going to get better and we want to come out the gates just blazing hot. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. And, and, and if you fast forward to today and what's happened with, uh, with COVID last year, we were able to, our, our guys didn't blink. It was like, we, we've, we've done this before. We know that we're not going to panic. We're just going to hit this full force. And we've really seen this happened. movie before. No, yeah, and, and, and we had the best year ever last year as a result. Wow. That's, I've got some more digging to do on, on this concept uh, in particular, because for a lot of people, they will not have heard of the great game of business, the Jack Stack book uh, with Bo Burlingham, as well as the program. Mm -hmm. Can you, in a brief moment, just describe the great game of business for folks who want to kind of dig in further? So it's really about sharing all of your financials with your team, making them aware of revenue that's coming in and all of the expenses that are going out. As business owners, a lot of times um, we're wary of, of sharing all of that information, but I think what it does is it really allows your team to just take ownership of it. Like, oh, let's not stay at the fanciest hotel when we go to this conference because that's going to affect our bonuses, you know, Um, and then excited about the revenue that's coming in as opposed to them feeling like, oh, it's just more work coming in. They know that it's going to affect their bonuses. Here's the thing with employee ownership, though, that are, are disclosing your numbers. I get it when things are bad, right? Because you get to hold up to the company and say, here are our numbers, look at us, we're not taking a salary, uh, et cetera. But when things turn and the company starts to grow again and is profitable, in your case, really profitable, doesn't that create this sort of two-class citizens, this sort of animosity? Like, how come you guys are making all the money? Like, is, it's, it's harder, isn't it, to, to share numbers when things are going well? I guess in a sense it is. And we have changed our, business, our, our bonus plan over the years. Okay. So the latest thing that we 
put together was just profit sharing. So just across the board, everyone gets the same percentage to avoid that situation where it's seen as the senior management team is getting more than staff members. So it has definitely evolved over the years. But then the other thing is when people see how much we're spending in daycare expenses, how much we're spending in um, employee benefits, you know, that's a lot of money and they're aware of that. So, yeah. For us, we didn't, it, it didn't have an effect at all. They knew that we always had uh, the best intentions for them. And Arlene and I weren't pulling um, money out of the company like crazy. In fact, the uh, resource pro, when they went to uh, do the deal with us, were surprised at how much money we had within the company. So we weren't those that were, you know, buying Maseratis and going crazy. No, it was just like, hey, leave it in the company. If something goes wrong, uh, we have we have backup. What tools did you use to cross train people? I've, you know, we talk a lot about standard operating procedures, SOPs on, on this show. Did you use standard operating procedures to cross train when you drop from 70 down to 30? So um, every single department of ours is very unique. Um, of course, we um, most of the production departments share the same database, but we would do training in a classroom environment. Okay, and so live. Yeah. Yes, live. And uh, the managers, supervisors would do the training to the employees. And um, yeah, it, it then just- Then we developed videos. And then we developed videos, videos yeah. Mm-hmm. Specific to what was going on there. Got it, got it, got it. That's helpful for sure. As you grow, I mean, describe how uh, the, the next sort of, stage of the journey. So you get through the 2008-2009 financial crisis, things start to turn around. At at some point, you started to, you were in fact approached by an acquirer. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So things definitely turned around for us. Now we had a team that was more um, well-rounded, right? We could pull people from any department and put them in another department during heavy volume periods. Um, Our people are able to communicate with clients and um, just provide solutions uh, across all the areas that we provide. So that was wonderful. Yeah. So then we fast forward to um, late 2019. And how big are you at this point in 2019? Like number of employees, revenue, anything you want to share? So we went down to, like Ted said, about 35 employees, um, probably in 2010. We went back up to about 55 employees by 2019. Yeah, we didn't want we didn't want the 70 again. We wanted to stay lean and mean. And that was actually one of our models with the staff. All of us were always saying lean and mean, lean and mean. And we were a lot. We were much more profitable than pre-recession time. So, yes, we started to have a conversation with um, a very big player in our industry and um, uh, dinner. Arlene fell in love. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And I was like, wow, this is great. This is late 2019. We go into 2020 Um, February, you know, and of course, the whole world is starting to hear about this COVID situation. And um, they're still progressing. They're having these virtual meetings with us. And in March of 2020, they gave a great um, eight figure offer. 
And, uh, you know, this is March 2020 when the whole world is shutting down. And I'm like, Ted, we've got to do this. No, <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> and from listening to your podcast and, and having studied a lot of what we should be thinking about and doing, that first one was kind of a test for us. I said, well, if we let's see what we get here in terms of a price. And if it's reasonable and it's up there, we have an idea of what we can go to market with and perhaps get some more and uh, perhaps do better when you have competitive bidders. Let me let me state it that way. And and it actually worked out that way. She was she did. She falls in love pretty easily with some of these <laughs> she folks. being Arlene in this she case. Being Arlene right here. <laughs> OK, yes, she absolutely. Uh, and uh, I said, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll wait. Be patient. And she was like, well, we don't know what's going to happen. I said, that's life. We never know what's going to happen. Uh, we've gone through our roller coaster rides, but we know that we have a good company. It's doing well. And I think it'll be even the numbers will be better for next year. And then we'll get a competitive bid. We'll put it out there. And that's exactly what we decided to do afterwards. I got so many questions about that. So first of all, it sounds like, Ted, in this case, in this situation, you were willing to roll the dice to see what else and, and, and risk effectively losing that offer in return for potentially a bigger offer with multiple bidders. Arlene, it sounds like you were in this case, the more risk averse saying, hey, bird in the hands, we're two in the bush. Let's do this deal. Is that characteristic of, of your partnership in other areas or is it unique to this situation? Are you generally, Arlene, more conservative and Ted more aggressive or was it really this this deal was uh was yeah, that that's one. that's definitely the way we are. I'm definitely more the emotional one and um, less um, willing to take on risk. And he's like, no, the sky's the limit. And, you know, bottom line. Yeah, let's let's go for <laughs> it. And he's the the strong negotiator. <laughs> OK, OK. So, Arlene, and this this ha- and this happens, by the way, people listening to this will be like nodding up and down and going, yeah, I know exactly the situation Arlene's in, because increasingly our listeners are being. Uh, approached by acquirers, whether that's strategic acquirers, private equity groups, and it's a bit of a romantic engagement, right? It, there's a romance to it. There's this, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, and so how did you fall? Like, what was it in their approach that made you fall in love with them? Like, what did they do and say that made you think, man, this is the one? Well, they did say, oh, you know, we feel that getting to the, to, to a closing, just one-on-one is so much better than we have a lot of than when we have a lot of players in the mix. Um, company culture was good. Uh, assurance that the team would remain in place. So things like that. Yeah. 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 And so it was sort of proposed that like, if we, you know, we're friends, why, and you know, why, why bring other people into this, this perfect mm-hmm. little relationship? Yes. Uh, let's just do this together. Let's not muddy the waters. Let's, yeah. I'm your mate. You don't need to compare me with anybody else in order to choose who you're going to marry. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but by the same, but, you know, but I have to add that it's a great company, you know, right. so, um, you know, very prestigious and, uh, you know, have, has done tremendous things in the industry. 
And that probably also goes into your like when you're approached by an industry uh, icon, then it's flattering and it's intoxicating and it's validating maybe on some level. Right. So there's all those emotions that go into it, I'm assuming as well. Yes. And then, you know, on top of that, we're in the very beginning of a worldwide pandemic. Yeah, but, you know, she's the emotional one and I'm the Mr. Spock. I go logically all the way across and down to the bottom line. Okay, so let's talk logic. It was an eight figure offer. We talked about uh, what what multiple ballpark are you able to share of earnings? Would it have represented that original offer? Um, So Bitter A's offer was about 12 and a half times. Got it. So... And Ted, what was, as a logical person, what was your, like, what was your reasoning? Because you were risking something, right? Like a mm-hmm. offers nothing to sneeze at, especially from a company, a big successful company with brand recognition that would, would be able to close and would have the cash to close. Like you were mm-hmm. risking a very reasonable offer, what made you think that there was a better offer out there? Uh, number one, I didn't think that our numbers were where uh, I wanted them to be yet. So you thought the company get, could grow further? I thought the company could go much further. And uh, I thought we could do it even during the 2020. I have really strong belief in what we've set up, what we put together and our people. So they were hitting the ground running. I wasn't going to uh, panic over it. And, and I felt that if I did, it would be a kind of a panic that if I ran for that number, it would be a panic. And for me, it was more important to get three, four or five bidders. You know that in the market, if you've got people talking back and forth and you've got people, uh, three or four large companies that really want you, they're going to give their best bid. In this particular case, how do we tell where we're at? Well, are they giving us a bottom line? Are they giving us uh, are they really, really wanting us at this point? They just throw a number out at you and then they say, OK, are you happy with that? And I didn't want it. I wanted outside parties to have that discussion about how much they, we were worth. More okay. than one bidder. I know we have to keep the name of the first bidder private to protect their sort of privacy. So let's just call them bitter A for the purposes okay. of, of our conversation. A. So. What was Bitter A's reaction when you said, time out, we're going to look at potentially, you know, shopping this to other potential acquirers? I'm, I'm going to answer that because it wasn't a surprise to them. Because from the very beginning, I said to them, we will entertain your offer. We will listen to you and we will see where this goes. But I really would like to put this out to market. So from the very beginning, they were aware that that was... Uh, on my mind. So they weren't surprised. So they weren't surprised from you, but Arlene, you'd fallen in love. What was their reaction to you specifically? Like, can you leave Ted out of the conversations next time? Is basically what they probably said. Yes. I felt like, um, you know, everything is done through virtual meetings and I felt bad, right? Like saying no to the offer. And I, you know, and feelings, you know, I felt like, Oh, what is their true feeling about us saying no? And I thought maybe they would be resentful. But then, you know, fast forward a few months down the road, maybe almost eight months down the road. And I realized that they weren't resentful when they entered 
back into the game. Okay. So there was no, they didn't try to pull a guilt trip or anything like that. No. They, ex- they expected it and they said, okay, great. Yeah. We'll play. But back. I can tell you, uh, Arlene was still second guessing us a month after we had given, she was like, are you sure that we made the right decision? <laughs> yeah. What was that like, Ted? <laughs> I just know her well. I, I, I'm able to calm her down and say, no, we're, we're going to be okay. Just have faith that uh, we have been successful all these years and we have taken these kinds of, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to have to take d- d- dives into the water, even though it looks murky at times. And you just have to do it as an entrepreneur if you're going to be a success. And you have to have faith in what you've put together. And I have a lot of faith in her and, and what she does. And I know she does in me. So uh, one of the things me. that we did, John, at the very beginning of the pandemic was we, you know, we had gone through the recession. Right. So in my mind, I'm like, what the heck? do we need to do to survive, right? Like what's going to happen? So we started doing, in addition to our podcast that, you know, that we have the spot on insurance podcast, we decided to start hosting live weekly compliance webinars. And we were doing it to keep in touch with the industry. Now, all of a sudden we weren't going to conferences. We weren't seeing our friends at conferences. We weren't seeing potential clients. And so we started putting together these live compliance webinars to bring the industry together, to bring regulators to the webinars so that they could see the industry. And it was just a game changer. So now all of a sudden, we were the ones that were bringing the industry together on a weekly basis. And um, our people were answering people's questions. We were resourced during the pandemic. What states were changing their processes? We were the hub for everyone. Then she had a very good idea and it was, uh, she said, why don't we do one on M&As? We're looking to, we're, we're looking to possibly sell this, this upcoming year, put this out to market. Let's do an M&A special and uh, we'll interview, we'll get a lot of them to talk about the, the industry. And it, it'll be a way for us to kind of look at the players out there and maybe choose one from, from that group and, because there's a lot of M&A activity in our in the insurance industry, right? It's very stable. Most um, either service providers like ourselves or agencies, we have sure. recurring revenue. So that's very attractive to um, the PE firms and the VCs. So we put together a series, of, I think it was a three-part series of M&A um, activity just specific to the insurance industry. So cool. Very <laughs> sneaky, but I love it. That's great. <laughs> That's great. So these webinars were bringing the industry together. You're kind of quietly doing these M&A ones to figure out who else is sort of in the space. Yes. Yeah. And from there, we picked the ones that we thought were really brought a lot to the table. Got it. That's how we selected our M&A advisor. Your, your sell-side M&A advisors, people who represented you in the deal. Interesting. That's cool. And give them a plug. Who, what's the name of the firm? So it's um, Agency Brokerage Consultants. They are amazing. Michael Mensch and Brenda Sally couldn't have done it without them. Got it. Okay. Love that. I still want to go back and dig further in this issue because I, I take my mind back to April of 2020 and like, I thought the world was ending. Like, uh, like I, I, you know, the NBA is canceled. (laughs) We were in Arizona on vacation. We flew home you know, we, we live in Toronto. So we were worried about getting home. They were closing the board. I mean, this was like, 
it was yeah. it was a really dodgy situation. And then, of course, all of the horrible news out of Italy at the time and then the United States, it was just one terrible, terrible thing after that. I'm fascinated that you didn't just turn around and say, take the money and run like like 12 times EBITDA at a time when the world is coming to an end it must have been. Yeah, I, I'll tell you why it wasn't. Oh, I've, I've been doing yoga and meditation since I was 16 years old. Okay. And I do a lot of Zen. I also practice Tai Chi. So I none of that really, you know, I, I try to to clear out, clean out that noise when everybody's panicking. I've also, you know, uh, been involved with, of course, Wall Street in terms of stocks. And I've been I've been watching for 20 years what's been going on. And I know that what goes up comes down, what goes down comes back up in a short time. And it was just a matter of surviving through it. And then mm. everybody was in a panic. And, you know, I tend to think that when everybody's in a panic, that's when you have to have your cool head. That's the best way to act. So. And Ted kept telling me, we know we've studied this process for a long time. We know that the best situation for us is to have multiple players in the mix. So we know that. So we shouldn't deviate from that. We have to trust the process. And Philadelphia. It's true. <laughs> some people would argue, though, that, you know, there are some acquirers, some big prestigious acquirers, maybe like Bitter A in this case, that just refuse to participate in a beauty pageant. Like they won't, you know, they'll respond to you and say, okay, you guys go ahead, you know, fill your boots, shop your company, we're out. Because we're not going to be held ransom to some process that you're running. Some, you know, some can be very argumentative and 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 really sort of play aggressive. Uh, but you didn't get that vibe at all from Bitter A. So quite frankly, we didn't know what Bitter A would say when we went into the formal market. You know, that's when we were like, I, we don't know if they're a little bit resentful, but they were the first ones that were. Isn't that interesting? In OK. Yeah. So then you, you hire agents, you do the webinars, which I think is brilliant. I love that strategy. Uh, you figure out agency brokerage consultants are like the, the top drawer people. You bring them in. What was next? What, 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 did, what were the next steps in the process? So the next steps is, um, you know, they put you through an extensive pre-due diligence process. Mm -hmm. for So for about six to eight weeks, we're just dealing with agency brokerage consultants just to go over everything and then come up with a list of potential buyers. And at that point, you know, they've, they've done hundreds of transactions in our insurance industry. So they, they know all the players very well. And then they ask us for a list of potential buyers from our side. Um, they were scouring also all our financials, making sure they they were so thorough. I was so impressed because they wanted to make sure that there was no question that Brenda could not answer. If anything that seemed funny or whatever, she she had the answer to it. And Brenda was the lead deal person yes. from yes. agency brokerage. OK, yes. got it. One other thing is that was important is we were getting solicited all the time, right, from PE firms. Right. You get like these standard um, template emails like daily. Ted got it. I got it. Our general manager, Russ Foster, would get them. And you tend to, after a while, just ignore those, right? Because they're, they all say the same thing. Well, in all of that, there was 
Uh, well, you're skipping the part about we had about 28 bidders at that point, 27. Uh, but one of them, which ended up being the winning bidder, yeah, was comes, one of the emails that we kept getting all the time that I had she goes, ignored. She goes, and then we've I, been ignoring this. Should, should we pay attention? Should we put them in too? I said, go ahead. Put them in. And okay, it, so... So you kept all the letters and this is a good best practice for anybody listening. Uh, if you're getting offers from private equity groups, uh, put all those offers. You may politely decline because it's not the right time for you, but put them all in a folder, email folder, whatever. And then when you do go through a process, yes. by all means, it's a great to, to reach out to them. That's what you did. I'm assuming. And they were yes. like, okay. Uh, and some of them actually did come forward and bid. Yes. Yes. Well, this I mean, in particular turned out to be resource pro which is the name of the ultimate acquirer. Yes. I want to get to that in a second, but before we go, so, so Brenda shops the deal, you go through pre-diligence, she shops the deal and, and gets 27 people. Did, did they all make, did they all submit letters of intent or did they just kind of raise their hands saying they were interested? Um, they all raised their hands that they were interested. And how many LOIs did we have? We had, Eight or nine? No, we had, I think, like 12 to 15 LOIs. And then we started having the meetings, which, of course, everything is during COVID. So they're all virtual meetings, which means sometimes we were doing three meetings in one day. So what what is the bachelorette or whatever? So, you know, Arlene was sitting there uh, (laughs) falling in love every time we had a Zoom meeting. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Defend yourself, Arlene. It wasn't like that. It wasn't. I even even had Brenda on my side. Brenda at one point was like, no, no. (laughs) Falling in love with these people. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. But it's very humbling. It's very... um, it's 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 it was a great process, right? And well, it sounds like it with twelve LOIs. I mean, this is incredible. Yeah, you know, it just makes you feel like because going into the process, you know, I said to Ted at one time, "What about if we don't have anyone that's interested in us?" You know, like yeah, you yeah. never know. What if we throw the birthday party and nobody comes? Yeah, right. And then when you start getting all these LOIs and you start having all of these meetings, then you start feeling like. Oh my gosh, there's only going to be one winner. <laughs> oh, when it was down to three, she was really torn, you know, about who we would choose. But interestingly enough, the one who had been after us for over a year before we even started the process is the one that really at the end was was giving us everything that we wanted and then some. So we were the Amazing. culture, I'm, I'm- everything. I want to get into that for sure. So the 12 LOIs ballpark, um, like how big a gap between the low bidder and the high bidder? Just give me a sense. Uh, There was quite a gap. So several million bucks. Yeah. 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 On a multiple of earnings, the, the, uh, the bidder A that we referenced earlier, the, the proprietary unsolicited deal was 12 times EBITDA. What did they come back at in the, in the more formal round? They really came back at the same amount. Interesting. Interesting. So they were, I would imagine, on the lower end of the spectrum of the 12 mm-hmm. offers. And so would the highest offer have been, ultimately, it was much more than 12 times Right. It was, um, it was, it was the highest offer. And also we just felt it was the best company that we could possibly 
partner up with just because of their company culture, the growth opportunities for our team, our legacy. Going into this process, well, wait a minute. I think John wants the number. Ted <laughs> is a wise man. He's hesitating. So, so culture smulcher. Give me the number. It was around sixteen times Eva died. Yeah, this is yes. a lot. Well, congratulations, sixteen times. Um, that's fantastic. Was that their starting point on the LOI, or did you kind of you know play one off the other and get them up to sixteen? No, I think Brenda was going back and forth with them and telling them, uh, oh, you know, okay. hey, we're we're in this area. I know that she went back to at least one or two and told them you're you're below where you you're need well to be in order to be where you need to be in order to be part of this deal. And some of them would drop some of them dropped out and then the others countered. But uh, in the end, the one that we chose actually had the the best deal for us. It was pretty much, you know, I, I had come to the conclusion that I it doesn't matter what a company offers you after the deal because you, you're not sure how you, whether you're going to get that number or what's going to happen. So I wanted that deal to be comfortable when we closed. So I said to, I said to Arlene, let's have the mentality that when we close, even if nothing, all these other promised numbers, all these other things that are offered to us, if they don't come, we are very, very happy with what we have. It's our retirement. It's whatever it needs to be. On but the day of closing. Anything behind that is a cherry on the top. We already got the cake. So that, that was it. the attitude. So to be clear, did the 16 times have sort of, it was a proportion of that uh, on an earn out or some sort of at risk piece? Or was that cash at closing? Cash at closing. And then, wow. yeah, it was cash at closing. And then we have two other goals that we can um collect revenue on, which are kind of like bonuses, not so much like an earn out. Mm-hmm. But let, mm-hmm. let me tell you how impressive Resource Pro is. And yeah, please I do. mean, we were planning to just be out mm-hmm. three months. As a matter of fact, um, Brenda did a complete turnaround because from the very beginning, we said, no, it's going to be a three, three months process, maybe, maybe six, six at the month. But we're not going beyond that. We have kind of a turnkey operation. Arlene and I haven't been at our main office in Texas for about a year, more than a year. So we had we had a turnkey operation. They can come and, and, and run it from day one without our help. So we said, look, here's the situation. Just three to six months. Once we started dealing with Resource Pro, we liked them so much. We liked their culture. We liked the fit with our company. And then I, I, at one point I said to Arlene, you know what? These people are giving us our retirement. We should just stay a couple of years and help them make sure that they're successful. We don't, want, we don't like to leave any place or anywhere we go. We like to leave winners. So if it has our name on it, if we've made a deal, let's make them a success. And so that's what we're doing. We're doing a podcast for several years. We're- they asked us you know, would, whether we would be willing to stay on. Um, for a certain amount of time. And we agreed. We said, yeah, we love the team so much. We strongly believe in the company. Um, it's just such a good fit with what we do. We couldn't have, I could, I can't imagine another company having have been a better fit than Resource Pro. You mentioned after the 2009 recession that your employees, Open Book Management, Jack Stacked, Great Game Business, how did you approach 
this news that you had or were planning to and ultimately did sell the company with your employees? So we actually um, started that conversation with our employees many, many years ago, Hmm. probably back in 2011, 2012. And um, we actually had um, two big, uh, powerful industry players um, approach us back in 2015 or 2016. And so our employees were aware of that. One of those um, we had companies, we, we had them visit us. They, they came, they came visited through. us. And obviously we, we said no to the deal. It wasn't a good fit for us, but our employees were already, you know, they knew that we were going to embark on this journey. So we were very open with them. So when, you know, fast forward to 2020, when we tell them that we're going to put um, Ilsa back on the market, they're like, okay, yeah, you've told us this before, whatever. Times. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you incentivize them at all? Were they, did they participate in the exit? So we personally did um, give them a thank you bonus is what we mm-hmm. called it. Um, we were able to share with them a really good number. 1.2 million. Yeah. Wow. For our employees, uh, these are people that have been with us for over twenty years, uh, at least at least twenty years, uh, who worked hard. Um, what we tell them is, look, we know we we've we've paid you for your services, but this is our way of saying thank you for getting us to this point, and we hope that the company that, that that's purchasing us values you the way we value you, and gives you opportunities. And we're hearing left and right of all the different opportunities that our employees have now with the Resource Pro. And for us, it just makes us so happy that we were able to really create a win-win situation for us and for our employees at the same time. And I don't know how anybody can make it through the process without having a lot of their staff involved. I'll tell you that. Because that was, that that's a bear. Yeah. Mm-hmm going through the financials and all getting information and all that we were buffered because we had employees involved. How did you arrive at $1.2 million? I think a lot of people listening to this really struggle with this decision, right? Because to your point, you paid your employees fairly, you'd given them a a safe working environment, you promoted them, you'd involved them, you give them bonuses. Like you didn't owe them anything, uh, you know, contractually, but you felt this sort of indebted. And I think a lot of people listening to this feel the same way, right? They feel like they'd like to somehow thank their, their staff, but they run into this, you know, I don't know if you follow the story with Intuit just acquiring uh, MailChimp. Have you heard about this deal where Intuit paid some astronomical amount of money to MailChimp? I think it's $12 billion, whatever. And there was a lot of backlash online uh, because some employees of MailChimp felt like they were, you know, promised that they would never sell and they, here they are selling. There's a lot of resentment that, that, that was caused again. Um, and so it's, 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 an, it's a challenge that I think a lot of founders struggle with. How do I properly thank the people that brought me? So what was, I understand your rationale for thanking them, but I'd be curious to know how you did the math, like why 1.2 and not 1.0 or 1.4 or 8, you know, like, like what, do you know what I mean? We wanted to, it to be an amount that was really impactful and still leave us feeling comfortable with what we were mm-hmm. getting. 
Um, but yes, it is a considerable amount of what we were getting in, in total, good percentage. But we felt that it was just, we couldn't have gotten to where we've gotten without this team. Mm-hmm. And even when we go through the, you know, the several months of due diligence, it was just crucial to have them there and crucial to have them know what was going on. And just from just the way that we've always communicated with our people, we just felt like it was so important for us to just give back to them this way. So, John, I was looking at the charts and and really looking at our employees and the ones, the the hard work that they had put in. And we started, hey, how much would I like to give that individual, this individual, this one to say thank you? And it just started to kind of grow from there. From there, we we looked at the numbers and it just, it, it got to, it got to around that point. And we said, this is the magic number right here. We've, we've looked at what everybody's receiving. I, I then did a chart with all the individuals in the company. Those have been there with us for a, for a year, two years, and so on, what they would be receiving. And then it just started to grow from there. When it reached that number, I was like, that's it. There's our number. That's right. as close as I can describe that. Yeah, no, that's, that's super helpful. You know, you mentioned that you were... Resource Pro, the ultimate acquirer, was surprised at how little money you had been personally pulling out of the company over the years. Um, I wonder, I'm curious how this has affected your life going from relatively modest income. I mean, we don't have to talk about what that is, but not pulling out millions of dollars a year to all of a sudden having this spectacular exit. Like, how is it, what impact has that had on your, your life? So actually we really started really hoarding cash in the last, I would say three years, you know, so you're, when you say hoarding cash, your, your retained earnings are growing yes. in the company. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You're, you're not pulling them out personally. You're leaving them in the company and that's yeah, growing. Yeah. Okay. yeah. We really, um, we have not lived like paupers in the last 20 years. No, yeah. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've received a good salary for many, many years. So okay. we've lived fine, you know, car wise, yeah. house wise, travel wise, all of that. So, yeah, the, the money that we're making from this transaction is wonderful. But a lot of people have asked, you know, what's like your big thing that you're going to buy? You know, yeah. don't really have a big, big thing. You know, we're more about taking trips and whatnot and having good experiences. Awesome. I'd love to dig in around retained earnings because this is an issue that comes up a lot in acquisitions because I think most entrepreneurs believe that as they, to use your words, Arlene, hoard cash, that that's kind of their money. Those are, you know, that's money that, and that, you know, when, when you sell, you're going to strip out those retained earnings and, and pocket those and then sell for a multiple year. And then of course, acquirers think differently about the retained earnings. Oftentimes they say, well, that's cash in the company and it's obviously needed to fund its immediate kind of working capital, et cetera. How was the retained earnings piece, this cash you'd hoarded dealt with in, in your, uh, in your acquisition. Yeah. So first of all, Resource Pro is very much a process driven company. They're all about, you know, very 
um, excellent processes and, um, you know, lean management. So we had several meetings about working capital mm-hmm. and um, the retained earnings, you know, right in uh, a few days, probably before the closing, they were like, uh, all of this cash has to go out. Like, we're not buying this cash. There's no reason for us to buy this cash. So please take it out. So, yeah. So they so said, take it out. Take yeah. it out. Yeah. You know, they came up with the working capital that was needed. And, um, you know, that's uh, what was needed to be left in there. And the rest, they were like, take it out. Were, and was yeah. the working capital calculation an, a number or was it a you know, percentage of receivables or was it just a, like a strict number that they said, this is, a, this is the amount of money we need in the company when you pass us the case. It was, it was a number. It Got was it. a number. Yeah. Got it. And then there'll be like a little true up meeting, you know, down mm-hmm. the road. Um, but yeah, they came up with a certain number and yeah, it was extensive how we went, we got to those figures. Got it. I'm assuming they bought your shares, not your assets. Uh, they bought the assets. Oh, they did. Okay. Yes. Got it. Got it. Amazing story. I'm so, uh, I'm so impressed with, uh, with, with what you've accomplished. And I'm, I'm so happy for you that, uh, that, uh, you guys were able to get such a huge bounce, uh, running kind of the process and sounds like Brenda and the team did an amazing job. Yeah. But you know, it's, it wasn't just Brenda. I mean, we had a unique situation in that we're in Puerto Rico and so we had to have financials for Puerto Rico, financials for what we were doing since we had these the two offices and they were dealt with uh, very differently. And so we had several accountants on the, an accountant from Puerto Rico. Um, we had a, uh, an accountant that's that just dealt with the taxes, as you know. And then we had our lawyers who were, who were yeah. really magnificent. Yeah. So we definitely want to give a plug to the Stinson Law Firm. Um, they have represented us for about 20 years. For the life of our company, pretty much. <laughs> Pete Thrain uh-huh. has been our point person. And then um, Joe Ratloff was our um our advisor for this transaction. And she was just phenomenal at the Stinson Law Firm. And then we used Andrew Roan from Bassi Bassi and Associates. And he, they're a team of lawyers, CPAs, and their specialty is tax planning through a transaction, through a sale transaction. So they were crucial and um, we were very grateful to highly him. recommended. Uh, we would highly recommend his services and their company services. They absolutely saved us a lot of money. We saw the difference from what we were looking to get. And then as, as they came in and redid the numbers and really looked at all the different uh, IRS. Uh, what do I call them? I don't know. All, all the IRS information, and they were able to find these other loopholes the and other areas, the best tax us. strategies for us. And that I can tell you, it can, it, it really, they paid more than paid for itself. Yeah. Great. And we'll put links to that in the show notes at builttocell.com. Are people, uh, are you open to people reaching out to you on LinkedIn or is there a good place for folks to say hi on social media? LinkedIn. I mean, we're on LinkedIn several times a day. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, we'll put connections to both your profiles in, uh, in the show notes. Um, and anywhere else you want to point people to the podcast or anything else you want to give a plug to, uh, now's the time. 
Definitely um, check out the podcast, which is Spot on Insurance, which John did um, episode 206 with us. <laughs> and um, that's really helpful, especially for our insurance industry. We also would love you to check out the company, ilsainc.com. And then, of course, our um, new uh, owners, which is resourcepro.com. Awesome. Well, Arlene and Ted, thanks for doing this. Oh, this was awesome. Our pleasure. John. I can't, this is so cool. After listening to Built to Sell for ooh, close to a decade, you know, to get to be guests on your show, want to thank you for all the valuable information that you're putting out there. This is tremendously valuable to anyone that's looking to go through a sale process. I just hope that this episode is as helpful to the listeners out there as it as previous episodes that you have done have been helpful to us, really. It's very generous, guys. Thank you so much for saying that. And uh, thank you for being great case studies. It's amazing to hear uh, the success you guys had. So I'm, I'm flattered that you'd uh, tell the story to, uh, to me. So thank you for doing this. Thank you, John. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.